Acts 2. So, Jesus, life, death, resurrection, ascension. Disciples are told, wait. They wait probably seven days until Pentecost. On Pentecost, we saw last week, like fire and wind, God's spirit comes upon that little group of 120 and they begin to speak in tongues. There's a danger whenever you study the book of Acts and the danger is this, wanting to make God into a formula. Well, I guess this is the way things work. We're gonna see when we get to chapter nine, probably in 2019, the rate we're going right now, I'll try to speed up. <laughs> Chapter 9, 10, and 16, that God saves some people in those chapters. So in chapter 9, he knocks Saul, later becomes the apostle Paul, to the ground and just says, you're mine, I'm saving you. Chapter 10 is this guy named Cornelius, where an angel is sent to Cornelius, and the angel says this, your prayers... And your alms, your giving, have come up as a memorial before God. Go talk to Peter. He's going to tell you how to get saved. Right? That's a whole different thing. Chapter 9 would be a Calvinism, right? You have no choice in this. You're getting saved. Chapter 10 sounds a lot like Arminianism. As a guy who's kind of, look, man, I'm kind of interested in things of God. I'm going to give. I'm going to pray. And God says, great, I'm going to save you. Then you skip forward to chapter 16. And there's this gal named Lydia who's at the river and Paul begins to preach and it says, God opened her heart to receive what Paul was talking about. That's called Wesleyan. It's called prevenient grace, that God opens our heart to receive his grace. So you see right there, I don't see a formula in how people get saved. I think sometimes we wanna narrow things down. This is the only way God works. And I think whenever we do that, God says, watch me, watch me. I'm not gonna work like that. I'm in heaven and I'll do what I want. Psalm 115, verse three. I'll save people any way I want to. You can try to make it always this way. All right, fine, but I'm not gonna fit that category. Well, the same thing I think we try to do is we try to make God in the way that the spirit works fit a formula. And for me, the two metaphors used for God's spirit, wind and fire should tell you, you don't control those things. You don't control the wind and you don't control fire, right? You do not control those things. And so what I ended with last time we're together is I just said, I think there are some ways that you can know when God's spirit's at work in your life. I think number one is you should become more like Christ because 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, as I keep my eyes fixed on Jesus, I am changed, metamorphosized into that same image by the power of the spirit. And then I said, number two, you should be displaying more of the fruit of the spirit, love and joy and peace and long suffering and meekness and temperance, right? That, that should, it's his fruit. So if he's at work in my life, those things should become evident. And I said, thirdly, I think that Paul tells Timothy, stir up the gift that was given to you. There was this gift given to Timothy by the laying on of hands. And he's told, hey, get that gift in action, start using it. 
And I believe, Luke 16, that if I'm faithful with the gift that's been given to me, more is given. God gives me and trusts me more things of the Spirit, right? So to me, those are like three definitive ways that I can always be kind of, how am I doing? Now, does that mean that's all that God's Spirit does? No way. Wind and fire. I just know that's a really easy way for me as a barometer to be checking what's happening. Now, can God do more? Oh, totally. Does God do more? Man, hopefully, right? And where we make a mistake is when we try to duplicate how God has worked in someone else's life. I wanna be like Paul. I wanna be knocked to the ground and have a vision. I wanna be like Cornelius. I wanna be like Lydia. That, that's not the way it works, right? I wanna be like Jonathan Edwards, who if you know his testimony, he would go out every single day at three o'clock, he'd ride his horse two hours into the woods and pray and then come back. And that was his habit. And if you read his journal, one day, he met God. And Jonathan Edwards, if you read him, he was not a charismatic, crazy dude. He was the most mundane, like when he preached, he would read his sermons like Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. You know why he did that? He said, I never want to be the one to cause somebody to be convicted. It must be God's spirit. So I will not use any voice inflection, whatever. I will not look up from my page. I will simply read what I wrote. That's Jonathan Edwards. One day he goes in the woods and he just, I met God. I met God. I, I can't explain it. I just met God in the woods, All right? So it'd be wrong for me to like, well, I'm buying a horse then. Every day at three, I'm headed to the woods, All right? So I'm just trying to be Jonathan Edwards. Or you read Blaise Pascal. Like there was a moment in Blaise Pascal's life where he just flipped a switch and he became a brilliant apologist for Jesus Christ. And no one quite knew why until he died. And when he died, he wore this coat. And when they took the coat off him, sewn inside was a page of his journal. It had a date on it. And it just said, at midnight, I met the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it just said, fire, fire, fire. And he was transformed. So should I, well, I'm gonna go play with fire at midnight then because I want the same thing. No, it's like this. If you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, I've read them multiple times with my kids as they've grown up. uh, There's a time when I think it's Lucy is being told by Aslan, who is a picture of Jesus, this is what's gonna happen to her. And then she says, "Well, well, what about someone else? And Aslan says, that's not your story. I won't tell you that. I think too often we want, what's gonna happen to them? He got that from John 21, where Peter is told by Jesus, this is how you're gonna die. And Peter's like, well, I don't really like that. And the apostle John was standing next by, nearby. He's like, well, what about him? And Jesus says, if I have him live until I return, what's that to you? You obey me. That's not your story, Peter. I'm gonna tell you your story. So I think we make a mistake when we try trying to duplicate somebody else's story, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be like a David, if you would, pursuing God's heart, obeying him. And if we're doing that, then like a Jonathan Edwards, then like a Peter, then like a Blaise Pascal, these things happen, all right? So with that in mind, let's pick it up. Verse five. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? It'd be like saying today, aren't these our rednecks? How in the world are they bilingual or trilingual or quadlingual? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Those would be Gentiles that are pursuing the God of the Jews, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. So verse six tells us that all these people, they hear a sound. Is it the wind that they hear or the tongues? Nobody knows. I do know this. If you've ever been in a foreign country for a while, which these pilgrims would, they would show up early and it was a, it was a major event for them. If you've ever been in a foreign country for a while, if you hear English, your native language, it's crazy. So I lived in Vanuatu for almost a full year and they speak Bishlama there. And it's a very like sing-songy language. So I'll, I'll give you a little bit. So um, I'll, I'll describe, I'll, I'll give you something that I find interesting. So uh, let me try to do it here. Hemi one cranky something. Hemi sing out strong, more. Hemi kai kai grass. That's Bishlama. You know what I just said? Lawnmower. All that for lawnmower. It's a descriptive language. Their Bible is like this thick. Like I used to try to teach out of their Bible and it took me the entire hour just to read the chapter. I'm like, oh, I can't do this anymore. I gotta teach out of English. So uh, very, very hemi, 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 hemi. Like you, it's just a distinct language. You hear it. It's very kind of rhythmic because of that. The, the, they repeat, there's only 2,000 or 2,500, something like 3,000 words in the whole language. English has like 100,000. So you repeat, you, just, you describe things. They don't have a word for lawnmower. Instead, it's this big, long. What I said was this. It's a crazy machine that's loud and it eats grass. That's a lawnmower, right? So that, that's the way they work. Just, it's, it's long. So that's the language I've been hearing, hearing, hearing. Then every once in a while, we get into a taxi or a hitchhike, the 15 kilometers into Luganville. And we'd be there and we'd be like hanging out, eating uh, at the Natangora Cafe. And then you would hear somebody say, hey, what's up? And you'd be like, what was that? That's an American. Where's he at, right? It's like instantly, it's like you are tuned into that language. So that's what's happening right here. It's like, what? I hear my own language. Wow. So at Pentecost, here's what God does. He uses a natural event, the gathering of all these people, to overcome the location barrier. And then he does a supernatural thing to overcome the language barrier. Like this great partnership, a natural event. Hey, people are coming for Pentecost, but I'm gonna do something supernatural in this natural event. It's like overcome two barriers at once. Have you ever tried to share the gospel 
in a different language. So in the school of ministry, I still don't know why they did this to us. Maybe just to completely humble us and like break us down. But I lived in Mexico for three and a half months. Every Friday, they'd load us up in vans, take us down to Ensenada and drop us off to share the gospel. I knew 10 words in Spanish and they weren't very useful. It, part of, one was to, how to go to the bathroom and the other was, what was my name? Or what's your name? Como se llama, right? So here's what I would do for about two hours in Ensenada. Como se llama? The person would speak like a hundred words to me. I'd be like, Jesus loves you, man. And then they'd be, just stare at me. And there'd be this awkward kind of, huh? I never got to justification by faith alone. It was just awkward. Yeah, okay. And the next person, como se llama? hundred words. Yeah, you know, Jesus loves you. And they'd just look at me. I mean, it was weird. Now, why is that so weird? Why do we face this all over the world? Genesis 11, right? Tower of Babel. You know the story. Something happened in Genesis 11 where God said, I have to intervene here. I have to break this thing up, okay? They had a new technology called the brick because before this time, they just, they just roamed the nomadic lands of Mesopotamia. All of a sudden, they had the ability now with a brick to make walls and to make protection and to get safe. Is technology good or bad? That's really good there, right? We get protection from wild animals and tribes and bad stuff. Technology good. And then they decide with those bricks to make a city. Are cities good or bad? Is Portland good or bad? <laughs> Let's just bring it right down real easy. Um, I don't know, both, right? No, there's nothing wrong with that. They build a city. I mean, eventually our, our destiny is a garden city called New Jerusalem. It's the perfect blend of everything we love about city and everything we love about the country pushed together, the garden city of New Jerusalem. It's brilliant. I say, all right. But what do they do in that city? They say, let's make a tower to reach up to God, right? Is that good or bad? Bad, right? It's called Babel. Today, Babel means like you can't understand somebody, but Babel really means it's literally the gate of God. They were saying, we are going to make a gate to God. We're gonna create our own way up to God. We're gonna make this high place to get to God on our own terms. And if you look at any city to this day, the high place of that city is given over to their God. In New York City, what are the biggest buildings given over to? Money, baby. New York City, money. Washington, D.C., ever been there? The whole city flows up to what? The capital, right? Politics are the God there, right? Ashland, what's the God there? At the top, there's a grove of kale at the very top of Lithia Park. <laughs> Grants Pass, you go to the top of 6th Street, what's at the top of 6th Street? A caveman. That's our God right there. <laughs> Right? And what they're saying is this high place is the way that we're going to get to God. And God says, no, nah, that's not the plan. And so he confounds the languages. And really the rest of the Old Testament is this battle of how do we get into God's presence? Is it by our own way? Are we gonna be able to do it on our own? And really there are these events 
Nadab and Abihu, Numbers chapter 11. Uzziah with the, with the ark. You can just go through where people are saying, I'm gonna do it on my own. And each time God says, no, you're not. That's not how I work. You can't just march into my presence. I am fire and wind. You can't control me like that, right? So God says, no. And here, what you have is the reversal of what happened in Babel, right? You have now, instead of the scattering of people out, it's the gathering of people in and now them able to speak in one language to everyone. Who would have ever thunk of that? Did you know tongues, this whole thing, Pentecost, is never in the Old Testament? We got all these other stuff in the Old Testament. In fact, Peter's gonna quote some Old Testament stuff to explain, but not the tongues part. Who would have thunk of this? It's radical. Here's the danger. I think often we try to rebuild Babel. We try to formulize our own gate back into God's presence. Five steps, three things, 10 ways. And when people do that, I always say, you know what? God's not calculus. If you give me numbers with God, I'm like, I don't think God's not calculus, right? Over and over what it says in the Bible is, seek my face. Pray, ask, walk, talk, learn. It's not a formula. We can be informed by theology, but theology is never the end. Do you know that? Too many people make theology the end. Head knowledge, that's all I want. Theology is not the end. Theology is like this. Um, so if someone's like, hey, I know your wife. I'm like, oh, what do you know about my wife? Oh, she's five, nine. Um, her birthday is July, man, June. <laughs> Edit, edit the tape, June 28th. Um, she used to be a blonde, now she's a brunette. Uh, she weighs, I better not say that one, uh, right? I'd be like, you don't know my wife. You know facts, but you don't know my wife. You don't know what she loves. You don't know what her dreams are. You don't know what she's passionate about. You just know facts about her, but you don't know my wife, right? Theology gives us some facts that can help us and guide us, but the end is not theology. The end is to know God to know him. That's what it's about. That's why David is held up in the Old Testament as the premier dude. Why? Because he wanted God's heart, not God's mind, not facts about God. I want God. And Jesus actually warns us about this danger. It's Matthew 7, 21, where it's at the end of the age and all these people are gathered in. And they say, Jesus, did not we prophesy? Did not we cast out demons? Didn't we do wonderful works in your name? Spoken tongues, moved in the gifts of the spirit. And Jesus looks at them and what does he say? I don't know you. You might know about me, but I don't know you. I don't know you. Huh. I think preachers are the worst at this because we want so badly to teach theology and with our three-point messages, but all we're doing is rebuilding a new Babel. If we're not saying, listen, this is how you know Jesus. That's the key. Because you have Genesis 11, this wrong way, where we're gonna get up there on our own, do our own thing. What comes after Genesis 11? Genesis 12, obviously, but <laughs> Abraham, right? And Abraham is the star of much of the book of Genesis. And Abraham doesn't try to get to God on his own. 
God comes to Abraham, says, hey, bud, I got this cool plan for you. Will you follow me? And Abraham is the only person in the Old Testament who is called what? The friend of God, the friends. That's what God was looking for. I'm looking for friends. I want you to know facts about me. You can know facts about me, that's good and that's helpful. But I want you to be my friend, right? And later on in Genesis 18, when God's gonna go do something, God stops and says this, I'm going to tell Abraham because I know him. I know what kind of guy he is. I've been hanging out with him. He's my friend, I know him. So I'm gonna tell him these things. If you come to the New Testament, Jesus says almost the identical thing in John 15. He goes, I'm not calling you guys servants anymore because servants don't know the will of the master. I'm calling you friends because I'm gonna tell you what I'm gonna be doing. We're gonna have that kind of relationship. That's what we're to be after. That's it. So don't formalize God. Pursue him the way he has designed you to, right? I've said before that, you know, there, there's this idea that the only way to seek God is like, well, do it like I do. Well, Matt, how do you seek God? Well, I get up in the morning, 5.30 a.m., get some black tea, go out to my study, read some, pray some, think some. What are you doing? Well, I get up at 5.30, good, check one. I have some black tea, great. Put some sugar in it, oh, you blew it. God will never meet you now. No. For me, it's always like, what drives you to a passion for Jesus that we've been designed differently and God knows that. And he goes, I wanna be your friend. Don't formalize me. Seek my heart like David did. What did David do to seek God? He wrote Psalms. That's what he did. He didn't have a Bible to carry around. He'd have to go to the temple or go out actually to Shiloh at that point, which is a, quite a journey away to even read the Torah. But he sought God's heart, right? So what, what did they say about God? When they're speaking in these tongues, God's spirit is moving through them. They're having these utterances. What did they say? Verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Not the mighty teachings of God, not the Torah, not, not a religious thing. They were talking about what God has done. Isn't that Christianity? That's Christianity. What has God done? He gave us his son who came and lived, demonstrating the heart of the father, died, buried, resurrected, ascended. That's what they were hearing. That's the work. This is Christianity 101. What they were declaring is what God has done, which is Christianity. Not what we have to do, not the things that we need to try to jump through, not the tower we need to try to build, not the three steps we have to go through. This is what God has done for you. It's the good news. And so this is all happening. And what happens? Verse 13. But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. It's 9 a.m., no one should be this happy at 9 a.m. They've got to be drunk, right? <laughs> That's what they say. You ever been mocked for your faith in Jesus? I have. You're in good company because right here it happens day one. Day one with the birth of the church, there's a group of people that mock the things of Jesus. Expect it, expect it. So here's what happens. Peter, 
standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show signs and wonders in the heavens above and on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. One thing to notice, when Peter stands up, does he keep speaking in tongues? No. He starts to preach, right? He starts to preach. Tongues was like the advertisement. And now he preaches, he preaches. I think some churches need to just take note of that. So here's what he does. Number one, he says, you guys are wrong, right? We're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. People don't get drunk at 9 a.m. I think Peter may have been a little sheltered because I know people that are drunk at 9 a.m., <laughs> right? <laughs> there are some people that get drunk at 9 a.m., right? First of all, you guys are wrong. Number two, he says this, this is part of God's plan. And he goes directly to God's word. It is written, right? I'm not making this up. Go read this yourself. It's written in the prophet Joel. And then he says, God wants to pour out his spirit on all flesh, regardless of gender, age, class. And out of that, he wants prophecy, vision, and the old to dream dreams because they sleep a lot more. It's time God has them, right? This is what he wants to have. And notice that prophecy is mentioned twice. Okay, your daughter shall prophesy. And then again, verse 18, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. What's prophecy? Is it Jeremiah? Is it Ezekiel? Is it quivering voice? Thus saith the Lord. In 10 days, there's gonna be an earthquake and everyone's gonna die. Here's what 1 Corinthians 14, two and three says it is. It says it's edification, exhortation, and comfort. That biblical prophecy is gonna edify, build you up, exhort, get you moving, or comfort you, give you hope. You can say it's faith, love, and hope right there. That's what prophecy is. And it's mentioned, if you don't know this, Paul three times talks about the gifts that God's spirit has given to us through Jesus. It's Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4.11. Those are the three main spots where you're kind of hit on what God's spirit is doing and giving to the church. In each of those three places, prophecy is spoken about. It's the only one that makes it into each of those three texts. How important is prophecy then? 
You got Joel saying, this is what God wants in the end for no matter gender or class servants, young, old, male, female, all of them, I want them prophesying. How important is it then to be people that are edifying, exhorting, and comforting? It must be really important. In fact, there's this one text, 1 Thessalonians 5, 18 through 20, that puts it like this. It starts out by saying, despise not prophesying. And then it says, quench not the spirit. And then it says, test everything. Cling to what is good and get rid of what is evil. Fascinating little, to me, just fascinating little text because context drives everything. So you've got this, this first, the, the first is, hey, don't despise prophesying. Well, why? Because you'll quench the spirit. It sure seems like that to me. That when I won't be a channel for God's exhortation and edification and comfort of people, or I won't be an ear to receive exhortation, edification, or comfort from people, something happens to God. I quench him. Have you ever thought about that before? That a human could affect God? That doesn't seem right. I thought God was the same yesterday, today, and forever. How in the world could a human quench God? Right? That's a radical thought. Here's my thinking on it. Who here has heard of my alarm clock theology? Hey, I get to do it again. So let's say tomorrow morning, I decide to go for a run. This would be a miracle. It'd be a moving of God's spirit like never before. So I decide, you know, I'm gonna run 10 miles and I'm gonna get it up at, I can run 10 miles an hour, no problem. <laughs> no problem. So I'll get up at 4.30 so I can just get back to work and do everything I need to do. So uh, I go home late night, you know, I'm talking to my daughters, talking to my wife, Harry's keeping me up. Uh, don't get to bed till one. So it's like just a blink of my eyes, 4.30, that alarm goes off. And the first time it goes off, man, I'm wide awake. Whoa, oh yeah, okay, okay. But like a supercomputer, my mind recalculates and I figure out I can do everything I need to do with nine minutes less time. Snooze, (laughs) right? Go right back to sleep. Nine minutes later, the alarm goes off again. Same volume, same station, but this time it doesn't quite awaken me, right? I'm kind of like, oh, and I just slap around, snooze. Nine minutes later, boom, it comes on again. This time it's playing a song I kind of like. And so I don't even turn it off. And I wake up at 10 a.m. Anyone else? Right? Did the alarm change at all? No, what changed? My response to it. I think that's what's being said. That if God's spirit impresses on me to speak a word of edification or exhortation or comfort to somebody. And I do this to God. You know, I'm just not gonna do that. Snooze. Then the next time God comes to me, it's not quite as bold. It's not quite as powerful. It's not quite as gripping on me. I'm more like, yeah, I'm just not gonna do that. And the third or fourth or fifth time, then we're just snoozing through God's spirit. He's doing the same. He's still speaking to us. He's still trying to get us to be alert. He's still trying to use us, but guess what? 
that our ears have been shut off. And you look throughout the Old Testament, throughout the prophets, what are they always saying? You guys got a hearing problem. God doesn't have a speaking problem. You guys got a hearing problem. The best hearing aid in the world is obedience. That when I start responding, not despising prophecy, listening when people exhort me or edify me or comfort me, receive that. And when I also become a vessel for that, then man, I get a hearing aid that helps me become more and more tuned in to the working of God's spirit. And God's desire is, according to Joel, I want everyone, priesthood of believers, young, old, male, female, rich, servant, doesn't matter. I wanna use them all. And I think that's always been God's desire. There's this great little story tucked in Numbers 11 where Moses is overwhelmed. So God says, get 70 buddies. We'll call them elders. And I'm gonna anoint them with the same spirit you have. He's like, all right, cool. So then they go on a retreat. They head out of camp somewhere, but they miss two of them. So only 68 go. And there's two left back in the camp. Eldad and Medad. How's that for a name? What's your name? Medad. You a caveman? Yes, Medad. <laughs> so Eldad and Medad are stuck at home. And then they're in the camp of the Israelites and they start prophesying. So this young guy hears them prophesying. He's like, whoa, that's weird. So he runs all the way out to where they're having the retreat to Moses. He's like, Duh, back in the camp, Eldad and Medad are prophesying. And so Joshua, who's like, Moses' right-hand man is like, Moses, tell him to stop. Tell him to quit it. And Moses says, why? Are you jealous for me? Would that all God's people were prophets and all of them were filled with his spirit. I think Moses was speaking prophetically about what God's desire is for every single person. Oh, that you would all speak edification and exhortation and comfort and that you would all be full of my spirit. That's always been God's desire. And so here we're seeing it. In the last days, the fulfillment of this will be everyone. And then he adds on, verses 19 and 20. What's that? Does it look like good times to be around? So, blood, fire, vapor, smoke, sun turned to darkness, moon to blood. Now, there is a certain way of interpreting the Bible where you say this is a, a apocalyptic language and it's just lifted out of certain spots. And I, and I can, part of me can resonate with that. There's another group that says this came true at the death of Jesus. You read Matthew 27, some crazy stuff happens there. But here's what I believe. I think the best way to interpret prophecy is to do what Jesus did. And Jesus early in his ministry, in the gospel of Luke, goes into a synagogue, grabs the scroll of Isaiah, opens it up, picks the spot he wants to read, Isaiah 61. And he begins to read and he says, Yahweh has anointed me to preach the good news, to restore sight to the blind, to set the captives free to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. And then it says he closed the scroll. The problem with that is all the people listening would be waiting because he didn't finish the prophecy. Because the very next words is an and, a conjunction, it's linked. And the vengeance 
of God. He stops before that, closes the scroll, hands it back. What was he doing right there? Like he cuts Isaiah's prophecy in half. The good part he keeps, the hard part, he just says no. What was he doing? He was saying, I've come to fulfill this part right now. This other part, the vengeance of God is for a later day. It's this idea, it's called inaugurated eschatology. So eschatology, a fancy word for end times. Inaugurated means just it begun. Or the, the phrase for it is already, not yet. That a lot of prophecy has an already component to it. This is already done, but with it, there's a not yet component to it. And Jesus in Luke 4, 18 and 19 does exactly that. This is the already part. This is what's being fulfilled right now in your sight, he says. But the vengeance of God is coming later. So I think the same thing about Joel. That the, the already part, the right now part, the inaugurated part is, man, God's spirit is being poured out. And there's coming at some point, the rest of it, the not yet rest of it. So that's the way I look at most prophecy with inaugurated eschatology. That I think broadly, I believe, King Jesus came 2,000 years ago and began something. This verses 17 and 18, awesome, killer, woohoo, right? And there is coming a point where this other part's coming. And we're right now in the middle that there's coming a point when King Jesus will return and what's been inaugurated will be completed, right? And so the, the way that I explain that is like this. Um, I, I think you've probably heard this before, but I'm gonna repeat it. Have you heard my Normandy illustration? Do you know World War II? So World War II, all historians say when the allied forces took the beaches of Normandy, the war was over. Germany could not win at that point. But the next 18 months were the most brutal, brutal parts of the entire war. As the allied forces just pushed evil, if you would, back, cornered them in Berlin and then extinguished them. So to me, we're right now, Norm our Normandy as believers was Calvary. The enemy's done. We could read the end of the book, read the end of the book. But we're still in this in-between time. We're still having to push back against evil, but we know one day the king will return and extinguish this. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment. But th that's where I think we're at right now. So there's coming verses 19 and 20 at some point. Th that's coming. When? I don't know. But right now what we get to do is we get to think kingdom thoughts. We get to think about what is possible. What will it be like? And in my heart, I say, I wanna work for that today because it's been inaugurated 2000 years ago. The king has landed. The king has commissioned us. And so I'll right now, I'm gonna be working for the coming kingdom today because it's coming. So that's what I think. But there's lots, tons, thousands of different ways to interpret that, just mine. So Peter, we're not drunk, scripture, and then Jesus. This is a good way to preach. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as yourself, you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite 
plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you have not abandoned my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you see yourselves and are seen and hearing. For David did not descend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certainty that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Every time Peter will preach, he will make sure and blame the people for killing Jesus. It's not the way to win friends or influence people, but Peter does not care. Okay, so real quick. This is, I think, one of the most classic gospel messages in the Bible, right? It starts out, verses 22 and 23. Death of Jesus on the cross. Brilliant. But number two, from verses 24 all the way down to 32, it's the resurrection. Two verses on the cross, nine verses on the resurrection. You know why? Because in AD 33, it wasn't a big deal for people to be crucified. It happened all the time. Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people got crucified. Not a big deal, right? They knew the statistics on crucifixion. 10 out of 10 people die on crosses. It's just what happens. What was the big news in AD 33 was the resurrection. Jesus is alive. And so the majority of this text is about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that he could not stay there, that it was actually prophesied in scripture by David. I think it was also in Isaiah 53 as well, you can find it, that the resurrection of Jesus was prophesied beforehand that he was not gonna stay dead. Brilliant, right? And yet the church, do we teach on the resurrection much? We seem stuck on atonement, awesome, great doctrine, justification, brilliant, amazing doctrine, right? Forgiveness of all these things that are linked with the cross, which are so awesome and incredible. And yet the best news of all is our King is alive and he's coming back for us. And so Peter here, he just says, man, it's about the resurrection, right? And Jesus, with the resurrection, here's what the Bible says. He killed death. That's what happened. When Jesus was resurrected, 
He defeated death. What is our biggest enemy? Is it global warming? Is it the economy? Is it China? Is it Russia? No, it's death, right? It's our greatest fear. I thought, I, I thought what percentage of the world's economy is given to trying to outrun death? Right, how much? All of our hospital systems, right? We have hospitals, why? Because we, we, don't, we don't wanna die, essentially, right? Gym memberships, right? We're trying to outrun death. Diet fads, what? We're, we're trying to outrun death, right? I eat Brussels spouts, that stuff, right? People eat kale. The only reason to eat kale is to try to outrun death. There is no other reason to eat it, <laughs> right? I mean, how much of the global economy is because we are afraid to die? The good news is this, Jesus killed death. That's why Paul, or Peter's like, listen, he's alive. Nine verses for that. Number two. Number three, you get the Holy Spirit. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That you and I, when we believe in Jesus, we're given God's spirit. Every single one of us at the moment we believe. There isn't something you have to wait for. There isn't some other event that needs to happen. You are given his spirit. Ephesians 1:13 promises it. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 promises it. You are given his spirit. Now, does it mean you can be filled more? Sure, there's all kinds of filling. We'll hit those in this book, all right? Number four. Verses 36 and 34 through 36. David did not ascend into heavens, but he says himself, uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Number four, he defeats all of our enemies. What other enemies do we have in this life? Death is a big one. Sickness, abuse, addiction, anger, rape, division of families, spiritual enemies. I believe there are real spirit beings that their sole goal is to steal, kill, and destroy humans, that that is it. Jesus says that in John chapter 10, right? Those enemies as well. So what Peter says here is, look it, he is, verse 36, both Lord, Kyrios, and Christ, anointed one. He is the king, he is the anointed one. He invaded, right? We're in mop-up now. That's where we are. And we know the end of the story. Revelation to me, the book is all, it all, the whole book is this. Jesus is getting the hell out of earth. That's what Revelation is. That just like the king had to be crucified and resurrected, earth has to be crucified, buried, and resurrected to ever be renewed. And that's Revelation. I'm burying this thing so it can be renewed and remade in the way that it's supposed to be. And one glorious day, all that is evil, King Jesus is gonna take it and throw it into this place called the lake of fire where it's gone. Happy day that is, happy day, all right? So then, man, gee whiz. Um, There's just so much. I had to cut out so much today, so sad, and I didn't finish. Um, Yeah, we have kids in the kids' wing that need parents, so father, I pray that our hearts would sing with joy 
for our King Jesus. That you have come showing us exactly what you're like, forgiving the ones who nailed you to a cross, having dinner with all the wrong people, going out of your way to restore a woman who had made men her God, choosing the unlikely to do the unthinkable. We're so glad that you're our king. And I pray that we would be a people who are full of your spirit, tuned in, Lord, that we would not despise prophesying. That when we should speak a word of edification or exhortation or comfort, that we'd be willing vessels to be used by you. And that the spirit would not be quenched among us, but the spirit would be strong among us, empowering us to do great things, wonderful works for your name and for your glory. I pray that we'd be a people who don't know facts about you only, but we'd be a people who are your friends, that you're our friend and that we love you And it's a love that we have for you that compels us to serve you and to speak of you and to share of you. I pray that we'd be a people that are not afraid to do things the way that you're leading us to, to take a horseback ride and to pray to stop at midnight and to hear from you, to go by a river and write a psalm to you, that we be that kind of people, Lord, that we would learn how you've created us to know you and to be known by you. I pray that the book of Acts, Lord, would not just go through us, but would become part of us, that we'd be authoring the next chapters here in Grants Pass. So empower us, Lord. Empower us to go home to spouses or to kids or grandparents or neighbors or friends. Empower us to be prophets, prophesying, exhortation, edification, and comfort. And may we be tuned in in step with you, we pray. We ask this in your name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.